So what language does is it's a tool for translating thoughts so you can move them from one mind to another. Is language necessary for thinking? One of the things I find so fascinating about this question is how it opens the door to better understanding just how separate the mind and the body may truly be in many ways. Growing up in theater, I was always telling myself one story in my head about my character, listening to the dialogue happening on the stage, reacting to it, speaking my lines to continue the conversation, singing and dancing as part of it, widely both recognized in many ways as their own language, and still somehow being aware of everything else that was happening and having mental space to think about what I do after the show that evening. And I'm the first to admit that at many times, I probably took it for granted that everyone else on that stage and in that audience had their own way of thinking and communicating that looked entirely different from my own. How on earth is it even possible that we're able to communicate with each other at all? So I sat down to explore these questions around language, thinking and communicating with others with Idan Blanc, a psychologist and professor who specializes in psycholinguistics at UCLA. Psycholinguistics is the study of the cognitive mechanisms that allow people to learn and comprehend language, as well as the relationship between language and other complex cognitive abilities. In other words, how our brain learns, processes, and uses language all throughout our lives. Welcome to Living Untitled. All right, well, let's get set up. All right. Get comfy. Ooh. Yeah, you know, we're a fun little world. Okay. Thank you, sir. I brought some notes about the things that I wanted to mention. You know, the whole goal of this, we're just conversational. It's easy going. We're basically just repeating our fun phone conversation from the other week. Mm -hmm. You talking about things that you're an expert in, me pretending that I understand something. I love it. I keep telling everyone, like all the team, I'm like, okay, so Iran is a, a psycholinguistics researcher, and, from, and they're like, uh. What is that? Like, it's lost. Like, you just see dot, dot, dot. Like, <laughs> well, I want to, I, I actually think it would be really helpful for uh, certainly me and probably everyone else listening too. Like, just explain psycholinguistics to us. Help people understand what that means Mm -hmm. as a practice first. Yeah. Linguistics, right? The study Mm -hmm. of language. But there are many types of linguistics, right? So some linguists go and document languages, right? The structure of different languages, especially endangered languages, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And we want to have some documentation of the variety of possible languages in the world. So some people do that. Some people try to describe the rules of a given language, right? Implicit rules that we all kind of know, but we don't know that we know. Psycholinguists treat language as a mental phenomenon, right? It's something that happened that's happening in the mind. Other linguists, for example, sociolinguistics treat language as a social phenomenon. It's something mm-hmm. that is happening between people, right? And so, for example, you can talk about how the way we use language can have a lot of influence on identity, how mm-hmm. it is intertwined with power structures, right? And maintaining power structures. And so that's a different a different type of linguistics. Psycholinguistics are interested in language as something that happens in your mind. And what is what is it that you know when you when we say that you know a language? Right? Mm-hmm. A lot of that knowledge is implicit, right? You can't yeah. describe it in words. And so we're interested in what type of knowledge do you have? What type of processes are happening in your mind yeah. when you want to say something or you want to sign something or write something or when we read, right? Or or listen. And I, I think one of the first questions that I it became aware of, which drew me to you in the first place, was this notion of is language necessary for thinking, which goes hand in hand exactly in what you're talking about here. And it's such a crazy question. The first time literally I saw that on the screen when I read your email that you had this question in here and I was like, holy cow, like <laughs> I never would have thought about this at all. And I'm glad you gave me that book recommendation too, was that until further notice, I am alive, Tom Lubach. And there's something that he said that I wanted to kind of bring up from that book that I think provides really nice context around that particular question. He said, my language to describe things in the world is very small, limited. My thoughts when I look at the world are vast, limitless and normal, same as they ever were. My experience of the world is not made less by lack of language, but is essentially unchanged. For folks that haven't read the book, this is 
Tom describing toward the end of his life as his brain was deteriorating because of a tumor, uh, cancer, unfortunately, that he died of as a result of that. So he's describing that sort of deterioration of the brain, therefore some of these cognitive processes with that. And it's such an interesting thing that he's saying here that he doesn't have the language anymore, but that hasn't changed his understanding of the vastness of the world and everything that's contained within it. So that, to me, kind of proves some of your argument, I think, that language maybe isn't necessary for thinking. Some of us don't use language to think really much at all or as the primary tool in which we think. Yeah, and and the case of, of Tom is really interesting because, I mean, he wrote the book, right? So yeah. he did have language. But what happens is that he had fluctuating loss of language, right? Yes. So there were periods where he kind of lost language and then he gained it back and he could write and say, well, this is what it felt like when I didn't have language, yeah. which we, we rarely have something like that happen. And so it's it's very valuable, you know, it's anecdotal and it's not scientific, but I think it's extremely valuable um, as, as one person's perspective to see, oh, wow, there is at least a case where introspectively it feels like you can think just just as well as you could before, you just don't have the words to describe it. Um, huh. And yes, that aligns with a lot of science that we have now done by my colleagues. They study people who had massive strokes mm -hmm. uh, and they were so, so massive that they caused almost a complete loss of language. So many strokes lead to some loss of language. So about a third of the people who have a stroke later on have some loss of some part of language. And sometimes yeah. it sort of they get it back slowly, sometimes they don't. Yeah. Um, these are massive strokes that basically wipe out your entire language ability. You're basically left with some understanding of very few set of, like very few nouns, um, often very concrete words, right? Like huh. chair and dog. Yeah. Nothing more than that. And definitely not the ability to build sentences or even yeah. phrases, Yeah. Um, which is what you would think if, if you think in language, it's not really just the words, it's mostly building phrases and sentences that express complex thoughts, yeah. right? Some of these people, despite having virtually no language left, um, can do many things that we thought or some philosophers and some psychologists thought would rely on language. For example, they can do arithmetic perfectly mm. well, um, even though arithmetic and language feel very, very similar, right? Yeah. So like in you have nouns and verbs, right, which are like people in actions, and you have numbers and operations, right? Like five minus two is kind of like the grandfather chase the baby or something. Yeah. They don't need that. They, they perform perfectly. They can understand cause and effect, which is a lot of cases, you know, the cause happens before the effect. Yeah. Um, it, there's sort of a linear order yeah. to cause and effect. And some philosophers said, well, language is what gives thought a linear order. Like you put words in a linear order. Ah. So you couldn't understand cause and effect yeah. if you didn't have language to take all of this massively parallel clouds of thoughts and yeah. organize it, but they can understand um, cause and effect. They can reason scientifically. They can think about other people's thoughts and realize that, for example, you can believe something that is different from what I know and that some of us may have false beliefs about the world that are not true. You know, they can play strategy games, for yeah. example, right? So, so chess or something like that, which requires a lot of planning, yeah. a lot of working memory, right? Keeping things in mind, a lot of forward future thinking, a lot of very complex understanding of a situation, right? All the pieces on the board and how they relate to one another. And that suggests that you really don't need language to huh. do all of these things. So that's one extremely informative case uh, about the question of language and thought. The other case that we're just starting to learn about is people who don't have inner speech. Yes, um, that boggles my mind. I cannot even understand a world Same. where people don't have inner speech. Yeah. So I, I definitely feel like I have inner speech and I feel like Same. it's such a big part of my mental experience of yes. myself, which yeah. probably is why I study language. Um, but not everyone does. And some people report not thinking in words, not having that that inner voice or that inner dialogue with themselves. Yeah. Um, and it's very interesting to try to figure out what that feels like, right? I, I, I almost feel like I can't, I, I could never tell what it feels like. There are some internet pieces that 
interview these people and they try to explain what it's like, but of course they don't know what it is like to have inner speech. Yeah, right? exactly. It's um, like, how can you explain the thing that you don't have or the difference of something that you don't know the other side of? Exactly. So one thing that one of them said there, you know, these movies where you often hear the inner voice of a character. So I think Mel Gibson is the what women want, or I forget, yes. right? Where he starts hearing the inner voices of women. And those people thought it was just kind of a metaphor. They thought it was kind of a, a cinematic device that yeah. it wasn't really trying to capture something true about humans that they have in their voice. It never occurred to them that that's something real that people experience. They're just like, oh, it's a nice trick. Um, wow. Yeah. Just like some people don't have visual imagery, like they yeah. don't see things with their mind's eye. And many of them don't realize that other people do. Um, yes. They think that when someone says, close your eyes and imagine a beach, they just kind of, it's kind of a metaphor. No one yes. really sees a beach when they close their eyes. And later on, they realize, oh, many people do. Yeah. Um, and so there are very striking differences in our sort of inner experience of how we experience our thoughts. Um, huh. So some people don't think in images. And similarly, some people don't think in words or sentences. And yet yeah. they don't think in any narrower or more limited way than others. Again, suggesting that really language is not the vehicle of thought. So how then do you not think in language? I don't know. I'm obsessed with this right now. I can't get beyond it. <laughs> but how do you not think in language and then still somehow be able to have a conversation with someone else? Right. So so what language does is it's a tool for translating thoughts so you can move them from one mind to another. Right. It's sort of if I want to transplant a thought in your mind, which sounds very science fiction, right? But I want to take an idea from my mind and put it in your mind. The best technology we have for that is language, right? Is taking that language and translating it into thoughts. Now, because language has to be able to transmit thoughts, if you look at the structure of language, it's going to be very similar to the structure of thoughts, uh, right? Because it has to somehow be able to express thoughts sure. in a way that yeah, is accurate enough. Yeah. Um, so the structure of language is very similar to the structure of thought, but we don't really think in language, even though it feels like we do a lot of the time. And one way to see this, again, right, subjectively, it feels like we do. But what you can do, and this is, for example, what uh, my PhD mentor did is... Um, you take people and you put them in, a, in an MRI scanner and yeah. you get images of their brain activity when they do different mental things. Yeah. Um, and you can look at a specific set of regions in the brain, which we call the core language network. It's basically a set of brain regions that really care about language. And whenever okay. you speak or you listen or you read, they are really active very strongly. Okay. And you can ask, are they also active when you do arithmetic or when you think about other people's thoughts or um, when you listen to music or all of these things. And these regions are not active at all. Like they mm. don't care about any of these processes. And we make the inference that that means that language is really not involved in music. It's not involved in thinking about other people's thoughts. It's not involved in making logical inferences, right? So inferences about the kinds of things like if A and B, then not C, huh. um, which th feels very language-like, right? The type totally. of thing you do on on um, the SATs. Yeah. Those language regions don't care about that at all. They don't care about even c processing computer code, which feels very much like language, right? Yeah. We even call it a programming language. Yeah. They don't really care about that. Yeah. And so, so that to us suggests that you really, to do all of these types of thought, you really don't use your language resources. You really don't use wow. linguistic sort of parts of your mind. There are cases where language does influence thought. Okay. So I don't want to say that it's never the case. They seem to be very, very limited. And one of them, which I think is fascinating, is your ability to keep track of exact quantities, hmm. right? So basically think in numbers. I'm not talking about arithmetic, like doing multiplication and all of these very complicated ideas. I, I'm talking about something very, very basic, which is knowing that something is seven and not eight. So we know that even infants and even animals can keep track of quantities that are up to four. So they know yeah. even baby chicks, when they hatch, they know the difference between two and three hmm. and four, which is very interesting. What we can't seem to do without the proper language is to keep track of quantities above that. Hmm. Um, so knowing that something is six and not seven or 11 and not 12 or, or 23 and not 22. And there are different ways to see that. But one of the interesting ones is there are some remote cultures that don't have number words at all. Mm. They don't have words to describe exactly one, exactly two, exactly three, which is also kind of feels 
very surprising. That's amazing. Um, My mind is blown in this whole conversation here. <laughs> and you can do a very simple experiment, which is, um, for example, you take a can and you throw nuts into it one by one, right? Yeah. So one, two, three, four, five, six. And then I can tell you, okay, now clap the same number of times as yeah. you heard bangs into the can. And they understand the task. You can make sure that they understand what that means. And they can't do it if it's above four. They can't clap exactly the same number, which would, to us feels so trivial. Yeah. But it's trivial because we use number words for that, right? You keep yes. track of it by saying one, two, three, four. And those words are kind of a mental hook yeah. to keep track of what's there. And when you don't have that hook, you can't think accurately. You can't keep track in your mind. You can't keep track of accurate quantities. And there's a very recent study that looked at people in remote cultures who know different amounts of number words. So for example, one person can count up to eight, another person can count up to 15 in the same culture. So, you know, they all live in the same village. They all have the same type of experience of the world in general. They just know different... <laughs> sets of number words and the person who can only count up to eight can only solve that task of clapping the same number of times as nuts in a can if you do it up to eight but he can't do it for nine and ten or, or eleven Holy and cow. the person who knows how to count up to 15 she can solve the task up to 15 but once you do it 16 or 17 she gets bad which really shows you that it's you know you need to know the precise words to keep track of those quantities so that's an example where language is really really critical yeah for some aspect of thinking right and think of all the things our culture has done because we have accurate numbers, right? Science, sure. engineering, yeah. um, all of those things. We wouldn't have them if we couldn't track numbers in an accurate way. My mind is still blown <laughs> even by your definition of language, by the way. <laughs> I just like, I've never heard it described that way, literally as taking one person's thoughts and translating them into someone else's mind. It's the craziest thing. And I marvel at people like you in the world. I'm sorry. Like, I'm totally fanboying here Aww. for a minute because I'm like, it's just, it's, I, I, you, you make it relatable, which is a talent. No, do kids like want to take that path? I mean, you don't start there as an undergrad, right? Like, yeah. you start more broad? There, I mean, there are the undergrads in the linguistics department, and they, they care about Got that it. more, but I don't usually teach them. I teach the psych students. Yeah. And I try to make it interesting, but... How do you make it relatable? There are a lot of memes, and there's... <laughs> A really? lot, yeah, yeah, a lot of memes, a lot of like pop culture references, and a lot of just real world applications. So we, you know, we talked about there's the George Floyd thing. The yeah. Derek Chauvin is the yeah. cop who killed him. He made a claim in court that George Floyd said something about I did drugs or something, mm. but he actually said I ain't do no drugs. And there's some linguistic analysis of the audio to like. Yeah support not what Derek Chauvin says. So that's like a real life implication. So we show that. We talk about a lot about like mishearing song lyrics when you get auto-corrected by your phone. Um, yeah. Because that's a lot, you know, that's sort of trying to, your phone trying to figure out what you meant based on what you typed. Yeah. Which is very similar to us trying to figure out what people mean based on what we hear. Yeah. And so, yeah, I give them a lot of like real life things to try to make it huh. more relatable. And the argument is that essentially when we mishear things in that type of an instance, is it because we had a motivation inside or a bias? Like we kind of talked about bias before yeah. a little bit in this. Like is it that our bias is telling us to hear something else? It could be. In some cases it is. So we have some some prior biases, right, yeah. to, to hear certain things over others. Yeah. And some of these can be, you know, very sort of racially motivated or mm -hmm. based on stereotypes. Some of them are very, very basic, right? Yeah. So like, you know, if I say, I don't know, yesterday I had rice and bees and yeah. you hear bees, you're likely to think, well, he probably said peas because very few people eat bees, right? So that's like a, a sort of a bias. It's not biased in the sense that it's bad. Yeah. But it's yeah. A, a bias to just hear some things over others or interpret some things over others. Sure. Um, and we all have these and we yeah. do it a lot. Yeah. In that instance, it's sort of like an acceptable norm. Exactly. And so we've, it, you're right, it's sort of like a bias, but it's not 
thankfully it's not some bias that's doing harm. It's exactly. just we we have norms in society. Is that us from a cognitive standpoint? Is that us as human beings trying to, uh, I guess, sort of related to the meta question in a way, like how we make sense of things in a way? Like, is that us sort of using relational context that we have? Like, yeah. it's, like you said, in that instance, it's like, well, yeah, I learned as a small child not to eat bees because they stung me so therefore (laughs) yeah yeah so you use a lot of your common sense and your world we call it world knowledge right basically your common sense yeah um to try to interpret what someone meant based on what you heard right because they might have misspoken you might have misheard maybe there was just it happens a lot in bars right very loud bars yeah where at least for me i hear 50 percent of what someone is saying and the rest i I try to use my common sense to figure out, to fill in the gaps, but you do it all the time and not just in language, like language is one example, but constantly what you get is some data, some sensory information from the world, but that information is a lot of the time very ambiguous Hmm. and your mind has to figure out what was really out there that caused you to see or hear or feel or taste, whatever, right? And so one very famous example is the dress. Right. It's very ambiguous information, Yes, which you can see because different people really disagree on what was actually out there. Yes. Right. And so our minds try to figure out based on that ambiguous visual information, what are the real, co- you know, the real colors out there yes. that caused us to see what we see. And in that case, different people's minds end up with very different answers. But it's something we do all the time. We just don't notice it most yeah. of the time. I mean, not to get philosophical for a minute, but I'm sure you kind of think about this a lot with your students and maybe even in your own research. Like, is there an absolute truth in those types of circumstances? Like, and again, I'm not asking you to comment as a philosopher, but like it probably comes up, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and in the simple cases, you know, the dress has some colors, right? Yeah. Like we can, there, there's probably, yeah. there's some way to like physically with an instrument figure out what those colors uh, are. Yeah. So in that case, there is a truth. In a sense, it doesn't matter as like the the, the phenomenon is so striking is interest, yeah. interesting that like who even cares what the real colors are? I think it's black and blue. Um, like I'm I, I had, blind, so I had, I had a friend who, who ordered the same dress after it happened really? uh, to have a copy of it. Yeah. And I think it was black and blue. Um, <laughs> so like in some cases there is a truth, right? And someone, when someone said something, they, they meant to say A and not B. Yeah. But in more complicated cases, like it could be hard to tell what the, the truth is. I mean, we talk about this all the time now, I think in the world, because uh, misinformation, disinformation, so on and so forth, we're often misleading people intentionally, you know, we're leaning into biases, some of those negative biases that we know are damaging for people and society as a whole in a lot of ways. And so it's interesting, everything you're saying, like there are those real world applications that are actually quite damaging that are essentially corrupting so many parts of our society in a way right now and it's it it, it can get scary fast yeah. when we think about these like things. one case where it's really unclear where the truth is is when you blame someone for an implicit bias yes right so not being like outright racist but doing something that is based on some implicit bias and the person says no it, it wasn't there and like yeah. well the point is that you wouldn't know it because it's implicit yeah but who knows if it if it really was motivated by it or if it's an act yeah that ends up hurting someone but not caused by an implicit bias, which of course we never want to assume, right? We always like, we want to side with the victim, but that's a case where we don't really know. Interesting. I mean, in some cases, you kind of can collect other data and kind of get it. An and I was going to say, the scientist maybe, brain in there, I can yeah, see it may, working. Like, <laughs> for some people or in some circumstances, like, okay, well, let's look at other instances of the same person and how they behave. And you can collect enough data to say, well, maybe there is an implicit bias, right? Because there is something consistent that yeah. keeps happening again and again and again. Yeah. Um, but if it's like a one-time thing, is it implicit bias? Is not implicit bias? You know, we were talking before and, and leading up to this conversation, I, you know, I'm a storyteller. Like, that, that's my job, right? So I've always been this huge advocate of kind of demonstrating the value or uh, arguing for value in the work that I do using all the research that suggests that, hey, like, stories are an amazing way in which we actually remember information, you know, versus just the data alone. But we were talking about this too before, that it's not always, there's no like real hard truth there that it's like stories are how we 
make sense fully of the world. Like, what is actually happening in the brain as we're listening to stories? And is this truly a myth more than a fact that storytelling is a super helpful device? I, I don't think it's a myth. I think, I mean, think of all the cultures that have stories, right? It's, yeah. it's clearly a very potent device. Yeah. Um, yeah, right? it stood the test of time. And exactly. like you said, so many different cultures still use the same device. And starting with myths, right, that explain, yes. that societies use to try to explain their origins, right, and their their norms and their ethical values, right? We sort of come up with stories to yeah. explain those things. Yeah. Um, and and they can definitely structure our memories, right, and structure a way of viewing the, word, the world, right? So that's what language does. Language yep. transfers thoughts between minds. So if I want you to think about the world in a certain way, I can use my language yeah. to do that, right? And that's yeah. what lawyers do, for example, right? In court, True. they try to convince the jury to watch a given situation in a certain way, to view it in a certain way and not yeah. another. So you can definitely use language to do that. Um, there is a classic experiment that I think anyone who has taken introduced psychology knows about, um, where you show people a video of a car accident. You ask them a question later on, what was the approximate speed of the car when it crashed yeah. or when it bumped yeah. or when it hit the whatever the pavement the tree whatever it was um, and depending on the word you use people give very different estimates of how fast the car was driving they all saw the very same movie so they all have the same visual data of speed but you using a specific word to frame the question sort of changes their memory or changes their inference of how yes. fast it must have driven you can even bring them back a week later and ask them if they saw shattered glass in the movie. And depending on how you phrase your question originally a week before, people would differ in whether they now remember seeing glass or not. Wow. Um, so the words we use definitely have a big, big influence of, on how we construe events in the world yeah. um, and how we later remember them. You are teaching us all the art of manipulation. Exactly. <laughs> words have power. Words are very, very powerful, right? Um, I, I tend to think of that as, in a sense, the power of words is way more evident when you study social linguistics, right? So mm -hmm. one example that I think about is how communities that have historically been marginalized have um, reclaimed words that traditionally have been used to, to treat them poorly, right? Or to, yes. uh, to sort of induce bias against them, right? So you can think of the word queer, yes. right? And how the queer community has readopted it, right? Or the word yeah. dyke. Um, yeah. So those are examples of words that can have a lot of power and that using them in a certain way can really change how a community sees itself and how it positions itself in society. I think of that more as social linguistics than psycholinguistics. Totally. It's... It's just an important part of language. Well, totally. And like you said, the, you know, in defining the difference between the two, psycholinguistics versus social linguistics or sociolinguistics, the, you know, one is really focused on the identity, which is the sociolinguistics, but there's still the act, even in the example that you just gave, that falls in the camp of understanding how psycholinguistics allows us to recognize you know, what's happening there in the brain in order to allow for that power, that word to mm -hmm. be recognized and that way of power in the first place. And you're not necessarily commenting on the point of identity, but I'm slowly getting it, okay? I'm slowly yeah. understanding. <laughs> yeah, and the, like one line of studies that people are really interested in these days about that is what happens when we process the word they, yes. right? Because they used to be plural in English and now it's not just used as plural. It's also a pronoun that, yes. that people can use to identify themselves, right? Um, to refer to themselves. And the question is, does it change the way that we think about the word they when we hear it? Do we still assume that it's plural? Do we have this like un, uh, uncontrollable instinct, right? That mm -hmm. because of all of our experience um, prior to the recent years, that they is plural, does it mm. change? How can it change? Um, yeah. in, in kind of not a dissimilar way around the, um, the 2016 election, um, people were trying to figure out whether we think of the word president as necessarily male, um, whether when you know you talk about a president and then you say she, are people surprised in what way they are surprised, right? Those are kind of ways in which your mind works with language, right? And assumes yes. which words are going to be used. And again, this sort of on the, on the um, boundary between language and thinking, right? Because it's also thinking of the concept of a president as yeah. someone who is male versus someone who is female, and then how that is translated into the words we use. Yes. You know, the, maybe the farthest reaching example of some of this, you and I kind of talked about this before as well, of differences in communication when 
language is not present in some instances, because like you said, obviously earlier as well, you alluded to this, that, you know, if it's, um, if we're signing, there's still language involved, but it's a physical action. And so it's a different way of thinking about language. But then you also mentioned the sort of cues, visual cues that we take note of. And there are so many cultural differences. You gave some fun examples, actually, when we were chatting before about this, just coming from your background of being Jewish and like coming from truly looking at if if I were to go to Israel and like I, there are certain things I should and should not do <laughs> because of how they're interpreted. So how is our brain, how, how does that sort of work in our minds then too mm -hmm. in this instance? Because like you, again, if I'm building on my definition of understanding now with psycholinguistics, it's I'm my thoughts in my head maybe don't have a language attached to them. So what I'm seeing maybe don't have a language attached to them in here. But if I respond with language to that, there's still some association that's happening. <laughs> right, right, right. So, you know, the fact that sometimes when we tell people that we have this set of brain regions that are only engaged in language, yeah. they think what we're saying is that language is sort of um, completely separate in, from thought in the sense that it's siloed away and it doesn't communicate with thought. It has to. That's what why we have language, right? Yeah. To transfer thoughts between minds. So, of course, this set of regions is connected to other parts of the brain and communicates with other parts of the brain. But it does its own thing, right? Kind of like when you have a big firm, you have different offices that are each specialized, that each specializes in their own stuff, right? You have the mm. PR part and you have, you know, you have the HR part and you, and they each do their own thing, but it doesn't mean that they don't communicate with one another and they don't all work in the service of a larger yeah. goal, right? And the, I think the, the same in a way is very true for the brain as well. Um, so one thing I want to mention is this distinction between sign and gesture. Mm -hmm. um, so sign, sign languages are languages. Yes. They're just languages in the visual modality, right? Yep. So like American Sign Language um, and all the other sign languages. And those are processed by the same brain regions that process Hebrew and English and Russian and all the other languages. Yep. Gesture is different, right? So gesture is something we often use in conjunction with speech, right? Or um, we call them co-speech gestures. Mm. Um, and they're not a linguistic system. They don't have the same complexity and structure that languages, including sign language, uh, mm. sign languages have. Um, they're still used for communication. And so on the one hand, when you study how people process speech and gesture together, mm -hmm. um, you see that they're very much interlinked um, mm. and they're part of eventually the same sort of larger system. Yeah. However, in the brain, it seems we don't have that much evidence. It's kind of a new area of investigation, but it seems like the language regions don't care about communicative gestures. Even though they serve a communicative goal, they are not language. Huh. Um, There's something that comes in addition to language. So initially those gestures are processed by other parts of the brain. Um, and eventually, of course, they have to be yeah. joined together, right? The the parts of the, or the, the processing of gesture information and the processing of language information eventually have to come together and combine. <laughs> And so eventually they do, but they start out in different parts of the brain. I, it's just, ah, oh. <laughs> so complicated, but it's so interesting. Okay, you talked about modalities there. So you talked about visual modality, that is, you know, sign language in this particular instance, the, the what would you call language that we speak, like an oral modality? Yeah. Okay, and you talked about, we've talked about this, like studying language in the lab versus studying language in the wild, right? Like out in the world. And we talked about like the multimodality sort of examples around this a little bit. Tell, tell us about that a little bit more. Like how are we, A, what's the difference, mm -hmm. you know, in those types of ways of studying? And then why is it so important that we people like you, the brilliant people, <laughs> not we, there's no we in this, <laughs> but are doing this type of research in the world. So, so it, it's actually relatively new trying to study language in all of its complexity yep. um, in the way that it occurs in the real world. What scientists are used to doing and what we sort of love doing yeah. um, is focus on some very specific mental process isolated from everything else, build a very cleverly designed experiment that controls everything else that happens, right? So that we can manipulate this one specific variable we care about, right? And we learned that from physics and biology. Um, and it's very, very useful to do. It's, it's, it's a useful line of work to try to break apart the mind and discover the, I call it the mental toolbox that we have. Mm. Um, 
And and so you can do experiments where, you know, people process individual words or they process sentences completely out of context, right? Just yeah. isolated sentences. And you yeah. can manipulate whether the sentences have a surprising structure or like an infrequent structure that people don't usually see or a very frequent structure that we're used to. Um, and we've learned a lot from that. And there's still a lot more to learn from that. But that is very different from how language happens in the real world, right? Mm. So there is only so much we can learn about how the mind really works in the real world where so many different parts have to be orchestrated and work together. Yeah. Um, and so in the past, I don't know, I guess decade or maybe a little more, there's been this trend to start to uh, study language in the wild or in a way that is slightly more similar to mm -hmm. language in the wild. So what I do, and I'm not the only one who does that, um, is put people in an MRI scanner and scan their brains while they're listening to stories instead mm. of individual isolated sentences without any context. Yeah. Um, right. So listening to a story or listening to a podcast is very, very different. Yes. Right. Um, it's more flowing. Sentences connect to one another. You have a lot of context from the previous sentence that you can bring to bear when interpreting the, the current sentence. Um, and we do see differences um, mm. in how the mind processes these. So I'll mention something that, you know, just because it, it happened to be my own research. Um, I, we talked before about whether language is important for thinking. Mm -hmm. There's the opposite question of what um, other types of thought or other types of cognitive processes are important for language. Mm. And one case is... Um, resources that we call fluid intelligence. Mm -hmm. That's very related to IQ, right? So the type of cognitive processes that you engage in when you do an IQ test or yeah. the GRE or the SAT or something like that, or solve logic puzzles. Um, we used to think that those are very important when uh, language becomes hard. Mm -hmm. uh, and the reason is that you have this set of resources in your mind and they're implemented in a very specific set of brain regions that whenever you do something hard, they light up. Yeah. So I like to think of them as your cognitive juice. Whenever you need more cognitive juice, whenever you do something challenging, <laughs> they light up. So if you try to solve a hard math problem, if you try to remember the license plate of the Uber, um, if you you know if you try to like keep in mind multiple things, if yeah. you you know if you try to drive somewhere that's not your usual route and you have to stay really focused and not do you know the thing you're used to those regions light up. And so, mm. because they always light up when you do something hard, we used to think, well, they would also light up when language gets hard. For example, when you hear very infrequent words that are very rare, right? Yeah. Like those SAT words. Yeah. Or when you listen to a sentence structure that is very, very complex, right? Yeah, like this um, entire conversation. Exactly. Like, okay, well. um, <laughs> and we knew all of that, or we thought we knew it from studies that used isolated sentences. But then I started putting people in the scanner and have them listen to stories and ask, when you're listening to a story and you suddenly see a sentence with a complex structure or when you suddenly see words that are very unpredictable from the context, yeah. do these resources participate? Do they give you extra cognitive juice? They don't, they couldn't huh. care less. Um, wow. The language system, the language brain regions are the ones that light up even more and give you even more juice, yeah. specifically for language. And what, we think happens here is that in previous studies, decades of studies, when you give people sentences out of context and you give them these very cleverly designed tasks, like, you know, I tell you, here is the grandmother that the daughter, that the girl is kissing. And I'm showing you a picture of a girl kissing a grandmother and a picture of a grandmother kissing a girl. And I ask you, which picture goes with the sentence? That's mm. kind of very hard to do. Yeah. Those cleverly designed tasks are very artificial. And what they do is they turn language into an IQ test. Yeah. So when you turn language into an IQ test, of course, you're going to get the IQ part of your brain, yeah. right? The cognitive juice part light up and help you. Yeah. But that's not what language is in the real world, usually. Mm. Um, and so when you process things more naturally, like stories, yeah. or when you process language and you have gestures to help you, um, right? Or when you have all these other things that happen in the context, those IQ parts of your brain really don't participate. They really don't help you. They don't need to. Yeah. Um, and so studying how language happens in the real world really changes what we know about how your mind and brain yeah. makes comprehension happen. Is there a difference in memory how we retain information based on those more IQ-driven part parts of our brain versus language-driven parts of our brain, does that, do we remember those mm -hmm. things differently? I think it's a very interesting question. Um, I think in general, um, the more 
and this is more of a conjecture because that's not my area of expertise, but it seems like I'm, there's a lot of studies on that, but the more naturalistic yeah. something, right? The more natural, real world-like um, something is that we experience, um, the better we would be able to remember it, right? Because we have way more experience in processing that type of thing. Yeah. Um, and and we can incorporate it into existing modes of thinking, yes. right? Um, so, so what we do know is, for example, if, if you see a series of events that conform to some schema you have of how the world works, right? We all have schemas of, for example, how an evening in a restaurant works, right? First yeah. you get seated, then you look at the menu, then you order, or how going on a flight works, right? You get to the airport first, you do security, or first you check in, then you do security, all of that. Yeah. Um, we have those schemas and when information that is presented to us is structured with those schemas, it's easier to remember. And so that's maybe one way why, why stories are so powerful, yeah. right? They are structured in ways that we are used to in how yeah. we experience the world. Um, of course, there is also the the other side of the coin, which is things that are surprising are often very memorable, yes. right? If something was not expected, um, you should probably try to remember it for next time so that you won't be as surprised next time. Yeah. So that's also true. Things that are surprising are also, that sort of don't conform to your expectations yeah. are also very well remembered, right? And they also have some, some effect in terms of alerting us, increasing our attention, right? Sometimes giving us an yeah. emotional response. So a lot of what, what many stories do, and including in TV shows, for example, right? Storytelling in TV shows is they take a familiar schema, right? A familiar mm. structure of a story and change something, yeah. right? It's what you think you know how it's gonna end, yeah. but then it ends differently. Um, mm. And that's a very powerful tool that we can use is, is take the structure that everyone knows, but change one thing about it. You're playing in this a lot. Playing with, can machines understand language ever? Maybe that's the big question, right? That you're ultimately trying to mm -hmm. do some research to help us solve, right? So obviously I, I, I think it's, most people probably that listen to this are, are very aware of why this is an interesting question because it's so topical in the world that we live in today, particularly as there's so much more of an emphasis on generative AI, so on and so forth. And we are really thinking always, I think right now, how we're communicating with this gear, these technologies that are increasingly more present in our lives every single day. So. What are you learning from this? What's important for us to kind of think about right now as we think about machines and mm -hmm. technology and language? So yeah, I, I find that completely fascinating. And if you had asked me like 10 years ago, whether we would have something like ChatGPT yeah. so soon, I would have said, no way. Yeah. Um, so I'm still shocked by the rapid progress that is happening <laughs> in AI. It's it's truly mind boggling. Yeah. Um, and, and as you said, it, it can do amazing things. Yeah. Um, the question of whether they truly understand language or whether they're just masters at manipulating words without actually knowing what those words mean is very hotly debated in my field. So mm -hmm. people have very strong opinions on both sides. Mm. Um, there are people who say, no, they don't understand anything at all. Zero understanding. Um, and I think what they mean is things like um, they lack the non-linguistic part of knowledge. So for example, when we use the word flower, that word is also related to a lot of knowledge that has nothing to do with language. For example, what it looks like, right? Mm. That's visual knowledge, what it smells like, mm. um, things like what flowers can be used for, for example, for courting, right? Romantically. Yeah. Um, all of that is knowledge that is non-related to language. And those systems like ChatGPT just have no access to that mm. type of information. Yeah. Um, so of course they don't understand what a flower is in that way. Yeah. Um, I will mention that there are newer systems that are called multimodal systems that mm -hmm. process both videos and language. So they might know the link between, you know, the word flower and images of flowers. It's true that models that just use language, right? Like ChatGPT don't know what, what a flower looks like. Yeah. Does that mean that they don't understand what a flower is? I don't know. It depends on what understanding means, right? So mm. the word understanding, what we mean by understanding, no scientist had a good has a good answer, or at least scientists differ wildly in what they think understanding means. Yeah. And that's part of why studying what I study, which is how we understand language is so hard because we don't even know what it means to understand language. We can't even agree on that. <laughs> um, and so one part of understanding, I think, 
is knowing how words are used. Yeah. So for example, you know that the word flower is often used with other words that relate to nature. It's not often used with words like, for example, justice, yeah. right? Or with, with words that are related to, I don't know, the moon, mm -hmm. right? Um, and knowing that, knowing that flower has something more similar to tree in it mm -hmm. than it is to mouse, and it's more similar to mouse than it is to chair, right? Yeah. And, and it's more similar to chair than it is to justice. Yeah. Um, that's part of understanding. Even if you don't know what flower is, knowing that whatever it is, it's more similar to tree, whatever that is, yeah. and it's less similar to chair, whatever that is, that counts as part of understanding. Yeah. And those models definitely understand that. Whether they understand anything more complicated than that, like the sentences they use, we don't know. Studies keep coming out that claim, yes, they definitely understand, or no, they definitely don't understand. For example, we've just done a study with systems that are not ChatGPT, but are previous generations earlier, mm. but we're still pretty good at using language. Mm. Um, and we tried to see whether they actually understand who is doing what to whom in a sentence, right? So when you say the dog chased the cat, do they understand that the dog did the chasing? Yeah. Um, and it seems like some of them really don't understand it, mm -hmm. um, even though they use those sentences. So something as basic as understanding who the agent of the action is, they don't get. Other systems do understand it, but they don't use it as strongly as we use it. Like for us, it's part of the the most important, right? It's the most important part of the meaning. Yeah. Is who's the agent, who's the patient. Yeah. Some systems get that, but they don't really use it as strongly as we do mm. when they represent the meaning of a sentence. Yeah. Newer systems do get it, do seem to get it. What that taught us is that just because a system can produce full paragraphs that are fully grammatical, doesn't necessarily mean that it understands what it's yes. talking about. And you really need to do very targeted scientific investigations to yes. figure out whether it understands. One interesting thing about these systems is that they're very easy to break. In typical situations, they produce language that is perfect and amazing, and it makes you believe that they understand, yeah. but they actually don't. So I'll give you one sort of silly example that is anecdotal. You know, there's this famous puzzle of what weighs more, a ton of bricks or a ton of feathers, right? Or one kilo of bricks, one kilo of feathers. And the answer is they weigh the same. It's both one kilo. Mm. Um, and if you ask that chat GPT, it would answer it correctly because it has seen that online, right? Mm. On the internet and mm. it has been trained on a lot of internet texts. But what happened if you ask it something that it has never seen? For example, what weighs more, one ton of bricks or two tons of feathers? Mm. Humans are very quick, right? Everyone or most people will be able to solve that, right? Clearly yeah. two tons weigh more than one ton. The first time ChatGPT was asked it, it said they both weigh the same uh, um, because it only regurgitates what yeah. it saw in other examples. And there are many other cases like this where you take a famous puzzle that it has seen on the internet mm -hmm. and you change it in one small way that humans would very clearly and easily and quickly catch on to, yeah. and ChatGPT does not. Yeah. Suggesting that it doesn't really understand the language that it's using, it's very good at copying and pasting different words and phrases together in ways that are human-like. My colleagues and I call this the good at language, good at thinking fallacy. So there's this fallacy that if a system is good at language, it's necessarily good at thought. But we've talked a lot about how language yes. and thought are not the same thing. Um, and so a system can be very good at language in terms of understanding the rules of grammar, understanding how to build a sentence that is grammatical in English, mm -hmm. where to put the right words. That doesn't mean that that system is thinking. And so, you know, there was this famous case that was famous for a short while of this Google engineer who thought their system became sentient. Yes, um, yes. Who then got fired. Story, yes. um, that's an extreme case of that fallacy that because a system is so good at language, it yes. must be good at thinking and might even be conscious, right, or sentient. Mm -hmm. And those things do not follow. Well, and I'm glad you made the connection around sort of how we started this conversation, talking about language and thought, and then looking at this, now examining this as we look at technology in the world today that we're creating these AI systems and examining it in, with the same lens of sort of applying what we've learned about language and thought and their relationship with one another and now challenging these systems to recognize where there are those flaws, where there are those limitations today, where there are things that we should be very aware of so that we don't 
fall into the trap of believing that our computers are sentient beings um, in front of us, but also recognizing, you know, the damaging consequences that can exist if we misuse what, uh, misuse this technology in its limited form that we have in it in the world today. And so I'd imagine a lot of the work that you're doing is going to help us improve these systems for the future, certainly, but also hopefully help us in the conversations that need to happen about ensuring that we're practicing responsible innovation here, mm -hmm. efforts, and we're putting the proper regulations in place to be those guardrails that are going to allow us to develop these technologies in a way that's going to be more beneficial for society and hopefully less harmful at the end of the day. I Yeah, I think that's that's very true. The, on the one hand, as you said, there is the sort of try, us trying to, us scientists trying to break those systems, mm -hmm. not as like a way of being mean, but just as a way of telling engineers, here, we found the holes that you need to fix. Yeah. But the, there is, in addition, in parallel, the whole other domain of AI ethics, right? How do yes. we use these systems responsibly, which is very, very important. Um, and it, it goes from, for example, how do you make sure that these systems don't spew hateful speech, yes. right? Don't say things that are anti-Semitic or don't say things that are, you know, anti-Black. Um, and there is more awareness to this today. So, you know, Google and Meta and, and um, all of these companies are trying to prevent their systems um, from saying that. Mm -hmm. However, people find that it's very easy to bypass those guardrails. Mm -hmm. um, even in silly ways, like sometimes you can sort of add symbols, meaningless, meaningless symbols to a sentence mm. um, or embed an instruction within a larger tax, text and suddenly the machine would write hateful speech. Mm. Um, there are also many, many biases that these systems inherit from the world. So what happens mm -hmm. is that you train these systems on some data so that they can learn to use language or to understand images, right? Yeah. And the data are data from the internet, but data from the internet are very, very biased and they reflect our social biases. Yeah. And so when you train a system on that, that's what it learns. Yeah. Um, so for example, uh, some of these multimodal systems know the relationship between words and images, right? So things yeah. like Dolly, where you can give it an instruction saying, make me an image of X, mm -hmm. and it gives you something. Those types of systems, if you ask them to make you an image of scientists, they would always be male. If you image search scientist on Google, what you would get, right, is male photos. Yes. Um, that's a bias. And yes. those systems learn these biases. Yes. And so... A big question is how do you curate the data that you feed these systems mm -hmm. in a way that cleans out the bias? But that's a lot of very heavy, intensive labor to do mm -hmm. to create these data sets. And the whole point of these AI systems is that you just feed them everything on the internet without supervision, and that's easy, and that's how they learn. Um, yeah. But apparently you can't do that because then they will learn things that we don't want them to learn. Yeah, absolutely. And it goes back to what we started with as well about you know, now these systems mirroring some of these biases that we have as people in the world, even how we potentially hear what is being said by others and the consequences of that. And we're looking at how that's only being magnified exponentially in this world as we think about technological advancement and how much we start to rely on these systems and what we need to be aware of. Yeah. Biran, this has been so much fun. For me too. Thank you. This episode was produced by the Untitled Future team. For more information about Untitled Future, please visit us at untitledfuture.com or follow us on LinkedIn. And for more episodes, please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Once again, I'm your host, Justin Boone. Thanks for listening. And remember, life's better when you belong. <laughs>